All right. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, this session is called The Grace of Divine Dwelling. The tabernacle is dwelling place. So we're going to look at the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to try and cover chapters 25 to 40. Okay, so that's what this session is about. I will not be offended if you need to get up and leave thinking this was someone else speaking or on a different topic and you'd rather hear someone else. That's totally fine by me. Um, all right, so if you have your Bibles open, please, to uh, Exodus chapter 25, uh, we're going to read the first nine verses, and then this is a sort of kind of expository lecture, and then I'm happy to take some questions at the end as well. All right, as we come uh, to God's Word, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, in your light we see light. And so we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit illuminate the reading and the teaching of your word uh, so that we might see Jesus and having seen him, love him more dearly and follow him more nearly. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, Exodus chapter 25 and uh, verses 1 to 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. A home says something about the person who lives in it or the people who live in it. A home says something about the person or people who live in it. My sister-in-law's home is decorated with bright, cheerful colors. Her kitchen has bright blue walls with yellow and pink bunting strung across the ceiling. And that's because Angela is a bright and cheerful person. My parents' home has a sign on the front door, Karibu. Uh, it's Swahili for welcome. Uh, inside the house are souvenirs and ornaments from various parts of the world, Tanzania and Kenya, China and India and Canada. And that's because my parents are well-cultured, well-traveled. They lived in Tanzania for many years. It's where I was brought up. So their home is warm and welcoming. But it has that international feel about it because they've traveled to all these different places and collected uh, ornaments and memorabilia from them. A home says something about the person who lives in it or the people who live in it. And it's the same when it comes to God's home in the book of Exodus. Here in Exodus chapter 25, God gives Moses instructions about a home that he wants him to construct for him. And the layout, 
the materials, the fabrics, the furniture, the oils, the fragrant incense, all of it says something about God, the God who's going to come and live in this home. Now, if we're honest, um, when we get to this part of Exodus, we tend to skip over it or our eyes glaze over as we're doing our read through the Bible. Okay, or at this point, it sort of gets very fast. You just skim the pages. Um, I remember years ago, Alec Mateer, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, said, if a certain part of the Bible is boring you, then God is trying to tell you something. And these tabernacle instructions, if we're honest, they can feel a bit boring as we're reading through them. Um, But that's the point. God is trying to tell us something. The details about the tabernacle from chapter 25 to 40, uh, they're not meant to bore us. They're meant to awe us. Not meant to bore us. They're meant to awe us. They're meant to awe us with who God is because his tabernacle home communicates something about who he is and what he's like. I think studying the tabernacle uh, shows us four things about what God is like. Number one, uh, God is king. God is king. Verses 1 to 7. Just look again at the materials that God wants Moses to use in building a home for him. Verse 3, gold, silver, brass, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, ram's skins dyed red, and badger's skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod, and the breastplate. These materials and fabrics listed here were materials and fabrics fit for a king. They were fit for a king. Now, the question is, how did Israel acquire these in the middle of the wilderness? Uh, Well, they had acquired them, if you remember, from the hand of the Egyptians on the night that they fled out of Egypt. So that's why they're in the possession of such royal things like gold and silver um, in the middle of the wilderness. And God wants Moses to use these things to make a tent for him that is fit for a king. But it's not just the materials that reflect his royalty. It's also the layout and the furniture. Uh, The layout was quite simple. There were going to be three main areas to this temple Uh, this tabernacle complex. There was the courtyard, a large rectangular space, and then the tabernacle, a single tent, but it had two rooms inside. The one room was rectangular in shape. It was the holy place. The other room was square in shape. That was the holy of holies, the most holy place. Uh, And this last room, it was square in shape and given that it was three-dimensional. It was a perfect cube, which represented perfection. It was a cube in shape. Um, It symbolized God's throne room. Uh, As we'll see in a moment, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. And the Ark symbolized the footstool of God on earth as he reigned from his throne in heaven. So the Holy of Holies, this most holy place, was God's throne room. And the inner lining of this room was made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim embroidered 
onto the curtains. So if you think about what it would have looked like, the ark stood in the Holy of Holies in this room, and it was like God, because the ark represented God's presence, it was like God was enthroned in the midst of the cherubim in the heavens with his footstool touching the earth. So the layout and materials, the fabrics and furniture, they conveyed that this was no ordinary tent. It was a royal tent. It was a tent for God the King. The King would be in residence here. You can hopefully see how the details are not meant to bore us. They're meant to awe us. This is the first thing that God's home communicates about God. He is king. The king has come to dwell with Israel. Second, uh, God is present. God is present. Look at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Here's the purpose of this sanctuary complex, the dwelling of God. That's actually what the word tabernacle in verse 9 means. It literally means a dwelling place. God's tabernacle is his dwelling place. Now, I know that's obvious, right? God's tent is his dwelling place, which means God is present with his people. That's obvious. But we need to see the significance of this statement in redemptive history, because this is a historic moment in the history of Israel. It's an epoch-defining moment in the history of Israel. Think back to Eden, uh, where God would walk with Adam in the garden. Do you remember that language? Genesis chapter 3, and the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But after the fall, up to this point in redemptive history in Exodus, the Bible never speaks again from Adam falling to the tabernacle. The Bible never speaks again of God walking with his people. God is only ever said to speak to his people. He appears to his people. But here in Exodus, he comes to dwell with his people. Leviticus chapter 26, uh, verse 11 and 12 says that in the tabernacle, God would come to dwell with his people and walk among them. That's the first time we read of God walking with someone since he walked with Adam and Eden in Genesis chapter 3. With Noah, with Abraham, with Isaac, Jacob, Moses, God has never said to dwell with them. He has never said to walk with them. He only ever appears to them and then disappears. But now look what God is promising in chapter 25, verse 8 that I may dwell among them. This is a significant moment in redemptive history. God is coming to dwell with his people, to walk among them, not simply to appear to them. No more intermittent appearance, now only permanent presence. And this is, in fact, the whole point of the Exodus. If you just flick forward a few chapters to Exodus chapter 29 and verse 45 and 46, Exodus 29, uh, 45 and 46, 
God says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see the purpose clause? The reason for the exodus is so that I may dwell among them. That's the whole point of the exodus. God redeeming his people out of slavery, rescuing them from the judgment of death and the oppression of the enemy so that he might dwell with them. This is why Exodus chapter 25 to 40 is not the appendix to the book of Exodus. It's the climax of the book of Exodus, as one scholar has put it. It's not the appendix. All the tabernacle instructions, which are hard going as you read through them, Next time you read Exodus, don't be thinking, okay, this is like an appendix to the book. Let's, let's get on to Leviticus. Well, actually, now let's get on to Deuteronomy, okay? Uh, don't, don't be thinking, Exodus, this latter part is the appendix. It's the climax of the book. This is the purpose of the Exodus, that God might dwell among his people. And this is underscored by each of the pieces of furniture mentioned in chapter 25, in verses 10 to 22, uh, we have the Ark of the Covenant. This was a rectangular box of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with pure gold. It had a lid on the top of it that uh, Dr. Barrett mentioned yesterday, this mercy seat. It was made of pure gold, the lid. And it had two cherubim molded onto it, one at each end, with their wings spread over, touching each other with faces looking down on the mercy seat. Uh, The ark was placed, as I mentioned earlier, in the Holy of Holies. That's chapter 26, verse 33 and 34. Now notice what this ark of the covenant symbolized. Back to chapter 25, uh, verse 21 and 22. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, that's the Ten Commandments, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are on the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Do you see it? The ark represented the meeting place, the meeting point between God and man through Moses, the mediator. Uh, It was the axis point between heaven and earth. Here is where God would meet with mankind again. He would meet with Moses, the mediator, and give instructions for the people. But it was more than just a meeting point. Uh, It was also a ruling point. Uh, It was here that God would give Moses his commandments for Israel. Now, remember that the Ark of the Covenant was also called the footstool of God, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, the footstool of God. So, in other words, God dwelt in his throne room in heaven, and the Ark on earth was his footstool, and the, the, the point where his feet touched the earth, so to speak. And in this way, the Ark symbolized that God had come down from heaven to earth not only to dwell with his people, but also to rule his people. And he ruled them by his law, the Ten Commandments, which was placed in the ark. So that's the first piece of furniture that symbolizes God coming to dwell with his people, the ark of the covenant. Uh, 
Uh, there's another piece of furniture that symbolizes his presence. It's in chapter uh, 25, 23 to 30, and that is the table for the bread of presence, the table. This was a, a wooden table, again, made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. And on it were 12 loaves, symbolizing the presence of God with the 12 tribes of Israel through his provision of manna in the wilderness. The bread was called, verse 30, the bread of presence. So this table and its bread also symbolized the presence of God with his people. And then in verses 31 uh, to 40, uh, we have another piece of furniture that symbolizes the presence of God, and that is the lampstand, the golden lampstand. This was a seven-branched lampstand made of pure gold. Uh, It had three branches on either side and then a central stem, a central branch. It had almond blossom cups on the end of each branch to hold the oil, And therefore, it looked like a tree. It was to actually resemble the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. It was lit uh, with, the the oil was lit uh, with light uh, 24 hours a day. And so it was a symbol of constant life and light. Uh, It was a symbol of God's constant presence with his people since God himself is life and light. So, the table and the lampstand represented God's presence. Now, they were not in the Holy of Holies. Only the Ark of the Covenant was in that uh, room. They were placed in the rectangular room, the the holy place. Uh, And um, they were placed uh, in that room, and separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies was the veil. Uh, If you can now picture it, if you're taking notes, picture uh, the tabernacle, uh, oblong way. Um, The entrance was on the east side. You have the courtyard, okay? The entrance is on the east side, and then the tabernacle's inside, and the entrance into the tabernacle was on the east side. And as you came in from the east, the table of the bread of presence was on the north side. The Uh, lampstand was on the south side, and to the west side, just in front of the veil, uh, was what's known as the golden altar of incense. Okay, and then beyond that, inside the veil in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. So, four pieces of furniture, but three of which in particular symbolized the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, then the Table of Presence and the Golden Lampstand. So these three pieces of furniture, they communicated what was at the heart of the tabernacle, and that was that God was present with his people, and permanently so, because when Israel would leave Sinai, they were there for about a year, when they would travel through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, these pieces of furniture would go with them. They would be carried by the priests. In particular, the Ark of the Covenant was carried in front of the people with the glory cloud going in front, okay, symbolizing the presence of God. So hopefully, again, you can see 
these details about pieces of furniture. They're not meant to bore us. They're meant to awe us uh, because God has come to dwell with his people. And that is significant because not since Adam has he dwelt with his people. So Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, Moses, none of them had this uh, blessing in their lives. But now Israel have it at Sinai. Uh, God is moving into the neighborhood. He's setting up his permanent presence with his people. So this is the second thing that God's tabernacle tells us about God. First, he's king. Second, he is present. Uh, Number three, uh, he is holy. He's holy. Look back at chapter 25, verse 8. And let, let them make for me a sanctuary, literally a holy place. Uh, the word sanctuary only occurs in two places in Exodus here and back in chapter 15, uh, verse 17. Chapter 15, verse uh, 17. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O God, which thy hands have established. So it's only used twice, but the word holy is used 75 times. So holy place is just used twice, chapter 15, chapter 25. But the word holy is used 75 times in Exodus, and the majority of those occurrences are in relation to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be a sanctuary, a holy place, because everything to do with the royal dwelling complex was holy. The rooms in the tabernacle have the adjective holy, the holy place and the most holy place, or literally the holy of holies. The garments for the priests working in the tabernacle were called holy garments. Chapter 28, verse 2. Aaron was to wear a turban with a golden plate on it with the words engraved, Holy to the Lord. Chapter 28, 36. It would be a holy crown on his head. Chapter 29, verse 6. Aaron and his sons and their garments were to be consecrated, literally made holy, sanctified for service. Chapter 28, verse 3, 29, 21. God promised to sanctify, make holy, the whole tabernacle complex by his glory. Chapter 29:43. The altar of incense, which stood in the middle of the curtain, uh, stood in front of the curtain in the holy place, uh, was most holy to the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 10. And Moses was to make holy anointing oil. Chapter 30, 25 with which he was to sanctify everything connected to the tabernacle. So you can see it, can't you? This tabernacle is no ordinary tent. It's no ordinary dwelling place. It is a holy dwelling place. It's a sanctuary. And the reason why it was a holy place is because it was based on a design from another world. It was based on the design of heaven. Look back to chapter 25, verse 9. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instructions thereof, even so shall ye make of it. In other words, the tabernacle 
and the furniture were to be made exactly after the pattern of God's home in heaven. The tabernacle was a type, a copy of the archetype, the original home of God in heaven. This is why the tabernacle was to be a holy dwelling place, because it was to represent God's dwelling place in heaven. Heaven is holy, therefore his tabernacle was to be holy. Its design was out of this world because it was from another world. It was from heaven, and that's because God is from heaven. He isn't from here, so his dwelling place shouldn't actually look like it's from here. It had to take on that persona of holiness. As you know, I currently teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, and in order to do so, I have to be resident here in America. I'm actually a permanent resident. I'm a green carder. Uh, but as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from around here. Uh, sometimes I like to tell people I'm from Texas with my <laughs> accent. For some reason, they find that funny. Uh, I'm not from here, okay? Which I'm told te technically means I could be from Texas because it's its own country. I'm not from America, I'm from Texas. Anyway, uh, I'm a permanent resident, but I'm not from here. And that's like God at Sinai. He draws near to his people at Sinai, but he's not from Sinai. He's from heaven. He's holy, holy, holy. And that is why his dwelling place is no ordinary dwelling place. It's no ordinary tent. It is to be a sanctuary. And this is underscored by the gradations of materials and fabrics and priests in the tabernacle. There were gradations, layers of material and fabrics and layers of priests in relation to the tabernacle that underscore his holiness. There was gradations in the material used for the tabernacle. Out in the courtyard, there was uh, bronze. The material was used for the basin and the altar. We'll come to those two pieces of furniture in a moment. But the material used for those was bronze. The, the um, pegs they used to put the outside tent of the courtyard into the ground, was, they were bronze pegs. Uh, but as you went into the tabernacle, then the material became gold. And then as you moved from the holy place into the most holy place, you had the pure gold on the mercy seat. So there are gradations of material that underscore the holiness of God. The whole point was that the closer you got to God, the more expensive and the more pure the material became. But outside in the courtyard, well, that's where the people were. You could use the bronze. Um, there was, it was the same with fabrics. There was a gradation with the fabrics. This is chapter 26. The fabrics used for the tent covers. As you move from the outer layer to the inner layer, there was a gradation. From, it went from animal skins, dead animals, through animal hair, live animals, to linen, living plants. So it went from dead animals to living animals to living plants. So you moved from bland colors to bright colors. You moved from death to life the closer you got 
to God's holy presence. There was a gradation in the fabrics used that underscored the holiness of God. There was also a gradation in access to God's presence. The priestly access into the tabernacle was uh, graded. The people of Israel had to stay outside the tabernacle complex. They could bring their sacrifices into the courtyard, but they couldn't go any further. Uh, The priests could work in the courtyard, and then also, um, uh, sorry, the priests could work in the courtyard, and then Aaron and his sons could work in the holy place. They could actually go into the tabernacle. But only Aaron, the high priest, could go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, once a year. So you can see this gradation of access uh, by the priests. The graded levels of access were heightened by the curtains and the screens and the veil, which restricted people to certain parts of the tabernacle complex. And the most important barrier, the most important screen or veil was the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place inside the tabernacle. And that veil had cherubim stitched into it, embroidered into it. And of course, that recalled, remember, this curtain faced east. And uh, what do you think that recalled? Well, it recalled the entrance to the Garden of Eden when God put cherubim on the entrance with a flashing sword. Well, the tabernacle reflects that now, okay, uh, with the cherubim stitched into the veil. So these gradations in material, fabrics, priestly access, veils, and curtains, all of them communicated one thing. God is holy. God is holy. A home says something about the person who lives in it. And one of the things that this home said about God was he is royal, he's king, he's present, and he is holy. God, the holy king, had come to live in the presence of his people. But herein lies attention, or attention is created at this point. God is king. God is present. The king is in residence. So good so far. But now God's holiness creates a problem. We might say that his holiness hinders more than helps at this point. Because God the king may dwell with his people, but his people can't get to meet him. God is holy, but they are unholy, as the golden calf incident of chapters 32 to 34 makes abundantly clear. So what's the point of God, the holy king, coming to dwell with his people? Remember Exodus 29, 45 to 46? The purpose of the Exodus was so that he might dwell with his people. But what's the point of God, the holy king, coming to dwell with his people if his people never get to meet him? The tension is reflected in the shift in terminology from talking about God's tent as a tabernacle to talking about his tent as the tent of meeting. The term tabernacle, dwelling place, is restricted to chapter 25, verse 8, to chapter 27, verse 19. And then after that section in the book of Exodus, from chapter 27, verse 20, to chapter 30, verses 38, a new word is used, tent of meeting. 
So in chapters 25, verse 8 to 27, 19, the instructions for the ark of the covenant, the temple, or the table, the lampstand, and the tent are really focused on the tabernacle as a dwelling place, hence the frequent use of the word tabernacle. But from chapter 27, verse 20, to chapter 30, verse 38, the focus shifts away from the tent being a dwelling place to the tent now being a meeting place. And this shift in terminology brings us to the heart of the tabernacle complex. It was to be a place not just where God would dwell with his people, but where his people would meet with him. Remember chapter 25, verses um, 21 and 22, God said to Moses, There I will meet with you above the mercy seat. So that's the climax of the book of Exodus, a meeting place, not just a dwelling place, a meeting place between God and his people. And yet, if you think about it, it's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Because here is this holy, royal dwelling place of God, but Israel can't go in. God has come close, but his front door is shut with a big sign, do not enter. So what's the point then in this whole tabernacle sanctuary complex if God's people can never get in to meet with him? It uh, reminds me of the time when an old uh, school friend told me uh, about a massive country estate that he'd bought in Scotland. Uh, this uh, was an old school friend who um, was the sort of guy who could sell snow to an Eskimo. Uh, he had the gift of the gab, as we say. <clears throat> and he went into construction after his engineering degree into property. And he made his millions very quickly. And he was looking to invest his money somewhere. He decided to buy this huge country estate worth 8 to 10 million pounds in Scotland. And he was telling me one night over a meal as my wife and I were meeting with him and his wife. And he says, you'll never guess who my next door neighbor is in Scotland. And I said, I don't know. Who is it? He said, you'll never guess. I said, well, I know. I don't know. So tell me who it is. He says, Prince Charles. I said, Prince Charles, the son of the Queen of England. He said, yes, Prince Charles. That's my next door neighbor on this huge country estate. Well, when he told me that, I only had one question for him. Have you ever met him? Have you ever met him? Because what's the point of Prince Charles being your next door neighbor if you never get to meet him? You might as well live next to Joe Bloggs rather than Prince Charles. And what's the point of God, the Holy King, setting up his permanent royal residence in Israel's camp if they never get to meet him. And the reason why Israel can't meet with him is because he is holy and they're not holy. Because of sin, Israel can't go in. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. The holiness of God, you see, creates a tension between God's dwelling place ever becoming a meeting place. 
the curtains and the screen and the veil are the big signs that say sin has no home here. But like those hate has no home here signs. Did you have those here in Michigan? Hate has no home here. We had them, a lot of them in Philadelphia after Trump got elected. Hate has no home here. Well, that's what those veils are like on the tabernacle. Sin has no home here. It's not welcome here. So what's the point then in this whole tabernacle complex if God's people can never get in, if they can never meet with him? And the reason I'm laboring this point is because isn't that the whole point of the tabernacle? For it to be a tent of meeting? Well, it is the whole point of the tabernacle, and that's why God provides a way for sinful people to meet with him even though they don't deserve it, which brings us to our fourth thing that we see about God from his tabernacle home. We've seen that God is king. We've seen God is present. We've seen God is holy. And now number four, God is gracious. God is gracious. And this brings us to our lecture title, The Grace of Divine Dwelling. This is Exodus chapter 27 to 30. God is gracious. We see this through more, three more pieces of furniture and through the tabernacle priests in chapter 27 to 30. The ark and the table and the lampstand underscored God's permanent presence with his people. But here in chapters 26 and, uh, sorry, 27 and 30, we are introduced to three more pieces of furniture, each connected to making God's holy, royal dwelling place a meeting place. These three pieces of furniture spoken about in chapter 27 and 30, they make God's dwelling place a meeting place. First, working from the courtyard into the Holy of Holies. Number one, the bronze altar. Chapter 27, verses 1 to 8, the bronze altar. This was the altar used for sacrifices. It was placed out in the courtyard at the entrance and it was on a direct path to the entrance to the tent of meeting. The sacrifices on the bronze altar were linked to meeting with God at the tent of meeting. Look at chapter 29, verse 38. Uh, 29, verse 38. And this is speaking about the instructions of the bronze altar in the courtyard. Now, this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Look at verses 42 to 44. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory, and I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. So do you see how the sacrifice on the bronze altar is tied to meeting God at the entrance, the King James says, at the door of the tent of meeting? The point is simple, isn't it? Any meeting with this king, with this 
holy king is predicated on sacrifice. If you want to meet with this holy king, you've got to come with a sacrifice. That's the first piece of furniture, the bronze altar in the courtyard. The second piece of furniture is mentioned in chapter 30. And here we leave the courtyard and we go into the holy place, chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, the golden altar of incense. This was placed inside the tabernacle, just in front of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Uh, Aaron was to burn fragrant incense on the altar in the morning and in the evening. At the same time as the burnt offering sacrifice was taking place at the bronze altar in the courtyard. So think about it. There's a sacrifice out in the courtyard and at the very same time in the morning and in the afternoon, nine o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon. And when it's being made there, inside in the holy place, Aaron is putting incense on this golden altar. Nine o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon. The idea was that the incense in the tabernacle was to be a sweet, pleasing aroma to God as it rose up into his presence behind the tent. Now again, notice the placement of the altar of incense at chapter 30, verse 6. So this is the golden altar of incense in the holy place. Uh, Chapter 30, verse 6, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Do you see how the altar of incense is connected with meeting with God? The altar, the bronze altar of sacrifice was connected with meeting with God, and now the golden altar of incense is connected with meeting with God. This was the closest the priest would come to the presence of God as they ministered in the holy place on a daily basis. A third piece of furniture is mentioned in the second half of chapter 30, and that is the bronze basin. Now we're back into the courtyard, okay? The bronze basin. Now, if you think about the dimensions here, you come in on the east side of the tabernacle, you come first to the uh, bronze altar, then you would come to the bronze basin. And then if you went through the first curtain into the holy place, you would come to the golden altar of incense. So think about the dimensions and the access, not access, but access, the bronze altar, the bronze basin, the golden incense altar. They're all on the same axis. They're all on the same line. How do you get to God? You come with a sacrifice, you wash yourself at the bronze basin, and you offer a pleasing aroma to him in front of the veil. That's how you meet with God, and that's the direct line to meet with him. Now, it wasn't that the people could wash themselves at the bronze basin. The people who washed themselves were the priests before they would go into the holy place uh, to do their work in the tabernacle. So, we have three pieces of furniture all on the same axis, all on the same line from the entrance to the courtyard, the bronze altar, through the entrance to the holy place, the bronze basin, to right in front of the entrance to the Holy of Holies, uh, the golden altar uh, of incense. They were actually all on the same line, as I said, as the Ark of the Covenant. 
So they weren't just on the same line as each other. Beyond the veil, there was another piece of furniture on the same axis, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it. Now notice what comes in between the instructions about the bronze altar, chapter 27, and the instructions about the golden altar and the bronze basin in chapter 30. Just flick back to chapters 28 and 29. Notice what comes in between. It's the instructions about the clothing and the consecration of the priests. So chapter 8, 28, sorry, and 29 is about the clothing and consecration of the priests. So adding all that together, chapters 27 to 30 are about two things. They are about altars, bronze altar, golden incense altar, and they are about priests. In other words, the way you can meet with this holy king is on the basis of two things, making a sacrifice and being represented by a priest. Sacrifice and priest is how you get to meet with this holy king. Because if you think about it, there are only really two hindrances to meeting with God, the holy king. Sin and separation. Those are your two hindrances. You have sin in your heart, and there are barriers between you and getting into the Holy of Holies. Those two things need to be removed. They need to be overcome. The people are sinful, and therefore they're separated from God by curtains and screens and a veil. Sin and separation, those are the two problems that stop the tent of dwelling being a tent of meeting. Both, however, are overcome by sacrifice and priest. The sacrifice overcomes the problem of sin. The priest overcomes the problem of separation because he goes in to represent the people to God. And all of this comes about by the gracious provision of God because the people don't deserve it. The golden calf incident of chapters 32 and 34 shows us they don't deserve it. While Moses is up the mountain getting these instructions, they start to build an idol, the golden calf, and start to bow down and worship it. They break the first and second, third commandment. So the people don't deserve it, and yet while they are doing that, God is graciously giving Moses these commandments to bring the people to meet with him. God's tent is set up to be a meeting place, between a holy God and a sinful people. Why? Because God is gracious. God is gracious. He invites dirty, filthy sinners to come and meet with him through a sacrifice and a priest. This is the fourth thing we see about God from his tabernacle home. Remember, a home says something about the person who lives in it. And this home, this tabernacle, has said to us, has communicated to us that God is king, God is present, God is holy, and fourth, God is gracious. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Johnny, uh, all very interesting, but uh, so what? After all, the tabernacle doesn't exist today, so how is any of this relevant for us in 2022? We know 
the tabernacle at Mount Sinai eventually became the temple on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, but that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587-86 BC. And even though it was rebuilt during King Herod's day, it was destroyed again by the Romans in AD 70. The only thing that remains of that temple on Mount Zion today is the western wall in Jerusalem where you see the Jews, the devout Jews, going down and bowing before the wall in prayer, praying for the restoration of the temple. So what's the relevance of this part of the Bible for us Christians today? Well, take a look again at chapter 25, verse 9. According to all that I show thee, after the tab- pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instructions thereof, even so shall ye make it. In other words, the tabernacle was made, if you remember, after the pattern of God's heavenly home. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 tells us that the earthly tabernacle was a copy of God's original home in heaven. So while the tabernacle on earth is no more, And while the temple in Jerusalem is no more, God's heavenly tabernacle still exists. God is still living there, and we are still living on earth. And God hasn't changed. He is still calling sinners like you and me to come and meet with Him, because that's the kind of God He is. There is no one who seeks after God, no, not one, but there is one God who seeks after sinners. All the way through the Old Testament, God seeks sinners to come and meet with Him. When Adam fell in the garden, God came walking in the garden and called to Adam, where are you? God wanted to meet with him. When Abraham was worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans, God called to him to leave his idols and to go to another country. When Moses was in Midian hiding because he had murdered an Egyptian, God called to him to meet him on a mountain, Mount Sinai. When Israel commits the sin of idolatry with the golden calf, God doesn't quit on them. He renews covenant with them through Moses' intercession, and then he calls them to come and meet with him at the tabernacle. That's how the book of Exodus begins. And God called to Moses from the tent of meeting. And what did he give him? The instructions of how God's people were able to meet with him, even though they were sinners. And here's the great news for us today. God is still calling sinners like you and me to come and meet with him. Now the question is, well, where do we meet with him? Where do you meet with God? Because here we are on earth and there he is in heaven. So where do we meet with God? At the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? The Vatican? At your local church building? Online? Where can we meet with God? Well, the answer is not at a place, but in a person. We can meet with God in Jesus Christ. Because you see, the Romans didn't really destroy the temple in AD 70. Jesus destroyed the temple in AD 33 when he died on the cross. In the moment of his death, do you remember what happened in the temple? The temple curtain 
the veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus destroyed the temple on earth, the meeting place of God on earth, because he became the meeting place of God on earth. He became the new temple. He became the place people meet with him. See, Jesus fulfilled everything about the tabernacle in Exodus, everything. He is the mercy seat, the place where God's wrath was propitiated. He is the bread from heaven in whom eternal life consists. He is the lampstand, the light of the world who shines his light into the darkness of our sin. He is the tabernacle. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The verb literally tabernacled among us. He is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the high priest who entered God's holy place to offer the once-for-all sacrifice for his people's sins. Jesus is everything we need to meet with this holy God. And he now dwells in the holy places above, seated at God's right hand, interceding for sinners so that they can go and meet with God through Jesus. You know, what was interesting about the Day of Atonement, we heard about this last evening, was that the high priest on the one day he was allowed in, the one thing he would never do in there is sit down. He would always stay on his feet. He would go in, he'd sprinkle the blood, and he'd walk out again. What did Jesus do when he went in to the Holy of Holies with his blood that he had shed? He sat down. That's why it was a once-for-all sacrifice. He didn't need to go in and out. He didn't need to keep sacrificing himself. His sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. So when he went back to his father in the ascension, he sat down. He sat down. And so we can meet with God, this holy God, in his heaven through his son, the Lord Jesus, who is the temple, who is the high priest, who is the sacrifice. That's how we get to meet with Jesus. Uh, sorry, with this holy God through his son, Jesus. The tabernacle, you see, it's not meant to bore us. It's meant to awe us as we see it as a type of Christ in his person and in his work. It's all about Jesus. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, there's the sacrifice. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there's the priest. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? There is a sacrifice. There is a priest. So come and draw near and meet this holy God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful picture 
of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We pray that you would forgive us for our apathy and disinterest in the details. Would you please give us a desire and an interest to read the details of your word better than we have in the past. We pray that you would help us to see that all of this is a shadow of the great reality of the Lord Jesus in his person and in his work. And may we love him the more for it and follow him more closely and long to tell others about this great sacrifice and high priest that is available to them so that they can come and meet with you, the holy God who dwells in heaven above. And we ask all of this in Christ's strong name. Amen.